0: Welcome, once again, to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the digital audio stream in which the members of the AOK are casting God's out, broadcasting our doubt, and casting about for answers to difficult questions. I imagine you can hear the road noise in the background, that's because I'm going about 70 miles an hour on my way to Stillwater, Oklahoma, to meet with Eric Ritan, author of Is God a Delusion? A Reply to Religion's culture, despisers. So uh, when I get there, um, I'll set up the equipment, and uh, we'll talk to Eric for a bit about his book. Okay, so to start off, how are books born? How was this book born?
1: I know this story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I tell a little bit about how this book was born in the book itself. Right. Um, I mean, there's a little bit more to it. Um, but um, uh, the the original germ of uh, of the of the book came when uh, one of my colleagues here in the philosophy department uh, handed me a photocopied page from a book. Right. And asked me to grade it as if it were a student paper. And I read it and it was a, a like a brief gloss on the first three of Aquinas five ways, five ways for, uh, proving the existence of God. Right. Um, and the author gives these three glosses that bear some superficial resemblance to, uh, Aquinas. Um, but, uh, immediately my thought was, well, he doesn't, he doesn't get the point, uh, of what Aquinas is really, uh, saying. Um, uh, and then uh, criticizes Aquinas at, at precisely those points where he's confused about Aquinas, precisely where he gets Aquinas wrong. So right. right. And so uh, I said, well, here's someone who misunderstands Aquinas and then confidently attacks Aquinas uh, not on the basis of Aquinas's mistakes, but on the basis of his own mistakes about Aquinas. Right. Uh, so I'd say, you know, that's that's shoddy work. It's not... uh, There hasn't been a careful... It's almost uh, as
0: if he's not trained in that field. Right,
1: yes. (laughs) Um, You know, that's kind of like an undergraduate. I mean, I see that sort of thing in an undergraduate uh, paper uh, fairly regularly. In fact, I see this misreading of Aquinas that I saw in this sheet of paper pretty much every time I teach philosophy of religion. And uh, if it's the first paper and if well how i'd grade it would be a function of the expectations i have of the student uh you know what level of course it is and, and the like but if this were an upper division course philosophy major course or something like that it would be a d because it would show that the person hadn't mastered one of the basic sort of features of of uh, uh the discipline which is uh uh, charitably reading an argument uh, and reconstructing it in its most defensible form, uh, so as to be in a position to critique it uh, in its most robust uh, Absolutely. form, right? right. Uh, which then that's one of the basic sort of skills of a philosopher. You want to try to reconstruct their argument in, in, in uh, a robust form, um, so that uh you're not i mean what have you shown if the most flimsy interpretation of their argument is readily defeated but there's a stronger interpretation of it that right you know so anyway um i uh it turned out this was you know page from the god pollution and what immediately occurred to me was you know this is an enormously successful book um and that uh, millions of people are having their only or main exposure to Aquinas through this book, uh, and uh, so Dawkins' mangling of Aquinas is going to be what people think Aquinas said. Um, I decided to buy the book and read it and see, you know, what else Dawkins said. And I found the book enormously entertaining. Um, I mean, I laughed a lot. I would read portions of it to my wife on driving to church. We drove to church in Tulsa, so... I mean, um, That's where you're going an hour for church. I was wondering about that. <laughs> there is no UCC church in Stillwater. and uh, But, uh, you know, it was an enormously entertaining book, but uh, in terms of uh, scholarly merit, it was iffy at best, right? He occasionally makes some good points Um, But my broadest objection was that uh, he, uh, you know, makes these bold uh, claims about what he's doing in this book. He says, you know, my uh, intent is to refute God, all gods, anywhere and everywhere that they, anything and everything supernatural, wherever and whenever it's been invented or something like that. Um, uh, These sweeping... Claims about uh, basically that all of theistic religion uh, is guilty of these, uh, uh, of, uh, of being uh, malignant and um, uh, irrational. And,
0: and those two aren't the same thing.
1: No. Right. right. And malignancy and irrationality are different. Right. right. And... Uh, but he accuses, basically, theistic religion in general of both of these vices. Right, and then what he targets is is not all encompassing of what I mean. What what his arguments are specifically directed against does not encompass uh, the scope of what he says he's targeting. Right. And, and he, so there's. He addresses this, right. basically
0: fundamentalism.
2: Yeah. I mean, in fact, is...
0: Almost all the arguments and almost all the new atheists are addressed at fundamentalism, with right. one exception where Harris tries to make an argument about moderates and how they're giving cover. Right. Which is the only one I can think of that's trying expressly to and, address moderates. And
1: Dawkins does invoke Harris uh, at one point in the book and tries to basically repeat Harris's argument. Uh, implicating religious moderates in the offenses of, of fundamentalists, um, and I didn't find Harris's uh, argument for for the case for moderate complicity in fundamentalist offenses convincing, and I didn't find Dawkins' appropriation of it convincing either.
0: I don't. I don't find it particularly convincing myself, but I want. I want to. <laughs> At the spread between the kind of god that you're arguing for mm-hmm. and the kind of god that the new atheists are arguing against primarily which is what you call the god of superstition yeah um i almost get the sense that we shouldn't even use the same phonemes or words for these two concepts they're so far apart that's right if the god that you're arguing for exists i don't mind and i'm <laughs> not really particularly i would disband the atheist group tomorrow if i thought that most theists were on about your god if that 's what they were talking about that 's right. what they were advocating in their churches i 'd be like we don 't need to we don 't need to do anything about this i 'm not interested in arguing against God if he exists i 'm thrilled about it so i need I need you to explain what kind of God you 're ta- the object of ethical religious hope right what is that and and how does it compare to the god of the fundamentalists
1: right well here i um, I was inspired by an- really old essay by a pagan uh Plutarch uh Plutarch wrote this essay uh, uh called on superstition in which he made a distinction between what he called superstition or what translations of the greek uh you know call superstition and what he called religion um uh I'm not expert in greek so I don't know what the the original greek terms are their are translation it's okay words. we but, can use english here yeah all right but um, uh, but plutarch makes this distinction and uh the basic uh nature of the distinction is this superstition a- involves uh belief in dangerous supernatural powers that we have to appease on pain of some kind of harsh retribution or uh punitive response, bad things are going to happen to us unless we keep these powers happy. And so basically, uh, superstition involves belief in one or more tyrants in the sky, mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, demand obedience. Uh, and if we don't scurry to obey with alacrity, uh, we're in trouble. And so, uh, uh, sort of fawning appeasement uh, seems to be this the appropriate lot, yeah. attitude.
0: This sounds uh. like what I grew up with. I mean, this sounds like the Southern Baptist Convention.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Well, in fact, I, I bet if we picked the church out at random, I bet if we picked ten churches out at random from within driving distance of where we are, most of them would have some element of fawning appeasement and fear heavily laced into their sermons.
1: I would not be surprised. I mean, the 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 genre of hell's fire and brimstone preaching um, uh, is uh, embedded in this notion of of a dangerous power in the sky that we have to keep happy, or we're in trouble. And we're not just in trouble for a minute or a day. We're going to be in trouble of the uh, in the worst. Possible kind of trouble for yeah. all eternity, right? Really,
0: really bad trouble. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I would say my suspicion, vis-a-vis uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and many other conservative uh, religious conventions, um, is that uh, the uh, the God of superstition trope, if you will. Uh, is a powerful one, but it doesn't exist alone. It right. exists in um, intention with this other image of God. Absolutely. Right. Um, and I would
0: say nine out of ten Sundays, they're giving you the happy vision of heaven, and and rarely they're they're preaching about the fear of God, you know, and hell. But I mean, it's it's in there. I mean, Life right. Church. For example, really big church, lots of campuses, very evangelical, very like love oriented seekers friendly, but they just did a series of, on the fear of God and you know put in the the, the brimstone in there it was you know it was unequivocal it 's not something they like to focus on, but it's there oh. it's in their theology
1: right um, i don 't think that these two images of God can coexist i think there I think that it is possible. To speak in certain uh, terms of uh, an angry god or a god who's angry at uh, you know, horrible misdeeds um, in a manner that is consistent with um, uh, a god whose essence is love and, and, and the like because I mean uh, I know some uh very loving parents um, who become angry with their children uh, and their anger with their children is an expression of their love for their children Uh, so it's possible to talk about uh, coherently and consistently uh, uh, a concept of anger uh, that is consistent with the concept of of uh, a perfect benevolence, right.
0: but but the punishment is always an attempt to right change the character of the children positively. It's never it's just strictly retribution, much less unending right. uh,
1: retribution, a permanent uh, uh, alienation, uh, total rejection. Uh, the, the 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 concept of eternal hell is a concept that. Um, if you are, and this is my view, if you allow that concept into your theology, um, Plutarch's god of superstition, the tyrant in the sky, begins to swell. Hmm. Uh, It's like a seed in any theology, no matter how much else in the theology is is about um, uh, a benevolent god. Once you plant this... uh, Eternal damnation seed. I think you've uh, planted a seed that will grow and transform uh, your theology piece by piece, and color ele- every element with this uh, uh, Plutarchian god of superstition. Man. Well, let me go back to Plutarch. The, okay. the what he contrasts the god of superstition with is the god of religion, mm-hmm. and the god of religion. Or gods, in his case, um, uh, is um, a, uh, in a sense, a transcendent benevolence in which we can place our hopes. Right? Okay. Um, the uh, the idea. One way I think about uh, about it is the difference between the relationship that a battered spouse has towards her husband and the relationship that um, uh, a woman in a, uh, in a relationship with a husband who uh, adores her and cares for her and is uh, uh, a loving partner in her life has towards her husband. Um, in the one case um, Devotion and trust are not uh, are not possible, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what you have are uh, behavioral approximations of devotion and trust, right? Uh, because but they're always if, colored by fear, right? They're behavioral approximations. They look sort of outwardly the same, but that's because the 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 spouse is treading on eggshells, not wanting to offend uh, this. Uh, this man who could explode at any moment and start to uh, beat her. And um, uh, uh, appeasement can look like devotion from an external standpoint. And she's she's trying to make it, him happy all the time out of fear of what will happen if he's not happy. And then feels this sense of relief when it seems as if for the moment, the rage is is uh, at the peripheries, so that she can maybe enjoy him, and then she plays it up and and uh, and pretends that it's all wonderful. But the the fear is lurking in the background. There is no genuine trust or devotion there, right? Um, because the object is not the sort that can um, bear those. Um, those attitudes right you so cannot I cannot have towards someone who I fear in that way uh, an attitude of devotion
0: and trust, so the idea of God that that you're defending in this book it's not going to look too terribly familiar to your average Stillwater Edmund resident who grew up with something a bit more fearful
1: well then uh, and, the... and
0: like a crucial thing about the God that we talk about here in Oklahoma is that. He cares about which book you're reading. It better not be in Arabic. Uh-huh. It better be in Greek. And, yeah. and it better have just the right epistles in it. It, it. We're very particular about which books you carry around here. Yeah. So that's a huge aspect of religion as it's played out on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting the sense that the God that you're defending is not only uh, a God of hope and love, but it, it didn't write one particular book? Or, or you know,
1: Well, I mean... Uh, What you're gesturing towards is the uh, the whole issue of religious pluralism and how uh, the uh, uh, the the God of Hope or the let me the way that I develop uh, Plutarch's alternative to the angry tyrant in the sky is in terms of the concept of the ethical religious hope. Um, Right. Right. And let me. I definitely want you to explain that because. the way I define God or the way I come at God is not in terms of a list of properties uh, but um, in terms of uh, uh, of the role that God fills in the psychological economy of the devoted theist that Mm -hmm. is the theist who legitimately has this attitude of devotion towards God which I don't think is possible in relation to an angry tyrant who you're fearful of uh, and seeking to appease. So,
0: so there's a, uh, a very few theists that have this genuine sort of hope that you're talking about.
2: Because, well, well I, I've I, met I, very few. I've, yeah, I've been to
1: I'm, some UCC churches, some Unitarian yeah, they,
2: churches, where
1: the, people are very. Hopeful. I mean,
2: I'm not. I, I'm
1: not a sociologist of religion, so I don't know the numbers, right? I know that I have always in my life. Uh, gravitated towards religious communities, uh, uh, which um, mm-hmm. marginalize the uh, the God of Fear, the the tyrant of the sky, and uh, emphasize uh, God as the fulfillment of of the ethical religious hope, by which I mean the hope that in some fundamental way reality is on the side of goodness. Right. right. Uh, that's what I mean by the ethical religious hope. It's the hope that, in some fundamental way, reality is on the side of goodness. And uh, I define God as that whose existence would fulfill this hope. Okay. And insofar as God is that whose existence would fulfill this hope, there are, of course, many different um, conceptions of God that we could um, uh, that we could propose. Uh, which would meet this condition, right? So there's not a single set of characteristics. Uh, there's a, a lot of room for uh, uh, for, but there's a lot of gods that don't fit that description. Yeah, but like, there's a lot of gods that don't. Like if right. you say
0: God wrote this book and in this book there's like a lake of fire, right. that doesn't fit your description right.
1: of God. Well, if if you say, or if you have a picture of God, uh. Uh, which binds God to a particular text in a particular way um, and says, God revealed himself in this text. If you fail to believe that God revealed himself in this text, you will roast for all eternity in fiery torment. And so if you dare to question whether God revealed himself in this text, uh, you 're going to roast forever in fiery torment uh, well suddenly the God of fear is is right there yeah, right? yeah. and uh, so the uh, the fundamentalist doctrine about the Bible uh, is very hard to to sever from the God of fear the God of superstition uh, once you once you have this certain view about the nature of the Bible and how the Bible is related to our salvation, right? Uh, once you have the view that our salvation depends on believing something about a book, how adopting a certain theory about a book, namely that the book is from cover to cover the inerrant word of God. Uh, and it also
0: colors what the term salvation means. I mean, in right. traditional Christianity, salvation means going to one place rather than another. So the, the fear is, is right there in the soteriological scheme. You're being saved from hell.
1: Right. Now, uh, let me uh, let me say something uh, because it's something that comes up. I'm uh, right now writing up a book proposal about relating to a book that I've been working on for, for a while with a colleague of mine in Minnesota, um, which is uh, a critique of the Uh, of the doctrine of hell basically our our attempt is to look at all the different ways of trying to defend the doctrine of hell and say that none of them work (laughs) Uh, and that uh, basically for each uh, if you adopt a a broadly uh, Christian conception of God uh, then for each version of hell that is proposed and there are various versions there is a version of universal salvation that is um, more coherent, more defensible, uh, more in tune with this doctrine of God. Well,
0: maybe we should get back to that when we talk about that <clears throat> book. I don't, want, I don't want to talk too much about hell if you've already got another book online. Yeah. Uh, which which new atheist authors uh, do you address the most in this book? Uh, Dawkins and Harris get yeah. a lot of play.
1: Yeah. Um, Hitchens less so. Hitchens less so. I I touch on Hitchens, but Dennett a bit more than Hitchens. Dennett and Stanger Hitchens are bit... about on the same level. Um, so I think we've read all those authors in our atheist yeah. book club. Um, Who else? Are there any other authors? There's there? one that I that I talk about a fair bit. Um, uh, probably more than Hitchens is. Uh, victor Stenger, uh, yeah, the the physicist right uh who's scientifically proving something. yeah that's, yeah that's right something. that who thinks that he's um uh scientifically proven that there is no god um, uh, uh his book is called god the Failed Hypothesis right um and um, anyway. a lot of
0: that's just a sustained argument against the argument from fine tuning right.
1: A lot of it is, but he wants to take it further than that, right? I mean, if if it was simply an attempt to show uh, that the fine-tuning argument doesn't work as a proof for God, I wouldn't, uh, well, I I probably wouldn't have even attended to it very much, because I think I don't put... I don't put enormous weight in the fine-tuning argument. I I find I I don't think we can ignore the argument. I think we have to pay attention to it. Um, but ultimately, um, I think the fine-tuning argument uh, rests on a claim about the probability of a certain observation at a point where talk about probability is no longer coherent. But I mean. Right. Uh,
0: I don't want to get off on that too much because yeah. it's not something I don't right. think that you address that.
1: I mean, I no, I don't spend much time on it at all. So, what in the book?
0: What are the <laughs> m- what are the main arguments of Dawkins or Harris that you um, that you do address? I, I don't I remember. Did did you touch on that seven four seven gambit thing?
1: Yes, uh, Dawkins tries to um, make uh, he tries to turn the design argument on its head. Right. Right. And. Um, and what he tries to do is argue that that if you introduce God to explain the complexity of the universe, then God, in order to explain the complexity of the universe, has to be even more complex than the universe. And uh, if the complexity of the universe needs to be explained, then so does God. Right. Right. And if God needs to be explained, then... We haven't. Um, not only have we not achieved anything by introducing the God hypothesis as an as an explainer, uh, but uh, we uh, have shown that, uh, however improbable the universe is, God is even more improbable. And uh, and if God is sort of the ultimate explanation, then. Uh, then what we have said is that um, the ultimate explanation is something that is enormously improbable. So in other words, those who believe in God believe that God uh, is not explained by anything else, uh, but God is enormously improbable. So you're saying that this enormously improbable thing just sort of happened or something like that. Right. Um, And Basically,
0: he's, he's applying sort of the rules of information theory and complexity theory that apply to the material universe to the idea of a timeless bodiless mind which right. is kind of weird right and like i'm not sure if the idea of a timeless bodiless mind is coherent but whatever it is it's not going to be able to be analyzed in the same way we analyze gases in a in a tube and say oh that's that's very complex or, or not <laughs> you have right. made something more simple by freezing it or melting it the, the things that we
1: yeah that Right. The it's kind of weird, right? And the other, I mean, the, this is one enormous problem with with Dawkins' argument, and it's a problem that Plantinga has pointed out. Right? I mean, Plantinga, uh just nails this argument, and uh, particularly on this point, on the on the issue of, of uh, complexity. Um, I mean, one of the things that Plantinga points out is that um, when Dawkins defines complexity, he defines it in terms of a physical system arranged in a certain way made out of parts and of course God is thought to be an immaterial spirit uh, in what way does the category of complexity even uh, apply right so that's that's one of the questions that arises for, for Plantinga and um, uh, for me there's uh, there's uh, a sort of deeper point which is that Dawkins seems to be committed to a kind of first principle um, and the fir- well several first principles but one of them uh, is that if something is highly intelligent then it is enormously complex now that is clearly something that we have observed as a correlation in material phenomena Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've noted that greater levels of intelligence are correlated with greater levels of physiological complexity, and uh, that correlation has been noted with sufficient uh, consistency. And we have been able to um, not only uh, note correlation, but but then uh, begin to explain uh, intellectual powers in terms of uh, the, the computational abilities that are made possible by the complexity in such a way that we can say that uh, uh, that there's a, a, a causation going on here. Mm-hmm. But this is uh, something that pertains to a physical system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, what Dawkins is doing is, uh, in effect... Saying, well, we've noticed that with respect to this kind of entity, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's this kind of relationship that holds. Um, so therefore, with this very different kind of entity, this kind of relationship hold, holds too. Right.
0: And, and I think the, the problem there is that when a materialist, a metaphysical materialist, thinks of a mind, they think of software running on a brain. That's, right. that's what a mind is to a materialist. Right. And to, that's how I think of minds. And so if you say there's a mind behind the universe, some part of you is picturing a supermassive brain that's that's computing and thinking, oh, I'm going to tweak the gravitational con- constant right. a little bit, I'm going to up the strong force, you know, get things just right. It's basically, you're thinking of a supermassive brain. That's
1: how the materialists want to think of what a mind is. And that's, of course, uh, the problem, because the theist is not thinking of, of God in those terms uh, at all. Because... Uh, the theist has a very different conception of mind. The, the other deeper point, I think, uh, that comes up when Dawkins asks the question, uh, in effect, well, who made God? If, if enormously complex systems like we see in the universe need an explanation, then mm. God would need an explanation too. Um,
0: Assuming that he's made of stuff. Right and follows the same rules of causality that material stuff does and lives within a timeline like material stuff does.
1: I mean, that's... Yeah, it's 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 problematic, but there's a... Painfully naive, really. But there's a... uh, I mean, one of the things that he misses is that theism, uh, at least in the Western tradition, the Western conception of God has always uh, conceived of God as... um, the ground of contingency and the ground of contingency has to be something which is not itself contingent. Right,
0: and right. You, you do lean on this argument a lot, the distinction between necessary beings and contingent beings. Right. There's a recurring theme in, in a couple of those chapters. Right, and I mean
1: it's it's the, the main sort of uh, uh, line of thinking that lies behind the most plausible version of the cosmological argument. Um, the the This argument, uh, the most plausible version of it, says that um, everything in our experience is contingent. It could have failed to exist. Right. It's this kind of thing that might not have existed. There's nothing about it which necessitates its existence. Right? You can't look at this pair of glasses and say, well, there's something about the glasses that makes it such that it could not have failed to exist. Right? Um,
0: if things had been different, those glasses would,
1: would not, not have exist. existed. Right? Right. What I call the Leibniz Clark version of the cosmological argument uh, does is it um, says that for every contingent thing, um, if its existence, uh, well, back up Leibniz explicitly. Uh, and Clark implicitly endorse a principle that has come to be known as, actually principle Leibniz, of sufficient rep, reason. Leibniz called it this, the principle of sufficient reason, that for everything that exists, uh, and every state of affairs, and every, basically, every fact, um, there needs to be a sufficient reason why it is the case. Right, and I have a problem
0: with this. I, I think it's right but it's right about stuff. It's uh, it's clear that there needs to be a sufficient reason why this Kindle exists. Like there's a particular configuration of molecules here and we know why it's put together this way. We, we can combine causality and intentionality to get a sense of how these molecules came together in this form mm-hmm. and, and why your book is on it. That's also intentional in my part. But the principle of sufficient reason, we, we understand why it applies to all the things in this room. Uh-huh. What I don't understand is how you could apply it to anything how can you take that generalization about people and thing operating in space and time, say, oh yeah, there has to be a reason why that's there. It was born, or it grew up, it was made. Mm-hmm. How can you apply that to the cosmos as a whole, or even harder, to minds that exist transcendent to the cosmos? I mean, it's a generalization, as far as I can tell, it's an intuitive generalization about all the things around us. How can we validly extend it beyond that?
1: Well, I mean, this is um, one of the things that uh, I stress... In the book is that the principle of sufficient reason is not a principle that we can prove as a general truth about uh, everything that we can talk about um, but it is uh, in fact a principle about which reasonable people disagree uh, so I don't what... think they
0: disagree much when we're talking right. about Objects, right? I mean, are, is anyone going to say there's not a sufficient reason for that chair to exist? I mean, we know where, where the, the molecules disagree. in that chair came together yeah. according to certain rules.
1: Where they where they tend to disagree is is at this most sort of fundamental level. Um, what? Uh, let me just sketch out the Leibniz Clark cosmological argument. Where they say, all right, we've got all these contingent things. Let's take the totality of contingent things. Um, and not just the totality of contingent things at the moment, but um, uh, throughout time.
2: Right?
1: Okay. Um, we might say that the totality of contingent things at this moment uh, is explained by reference to the totality of contingent things in the preceding moment. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and Leibniz says something along these lines, that, that the totality of contingent things at this moment uh, has its explanation in a prior state and the laws of the universe which explain transition from one state to another something something along those lines so that we can keep going back and explain the totality of contingent things uh, by a a preceding uh, totality if you will. but what we now have is a larger totality of contingent things uh, and even if the regress is infinite, we still uh don't have an explanation for the totality right. uh, of contingent things
0: but wouldn't and, wouldn't our intuitions about that principle like kind of break down when you got anywhere near the big bang we were talking about we we're talking about things that even the best cosmologists barely claim to understand right and you're at the edge of the beginning of time, time equals zero i. I have trouble wrapping my head around the idea of time
1: equals zero. Yeah. Well, it, there's no, there's no question that we're dealing with, with things that are, uh, that our brains are not really equipped to grasp, and this is why I'm not going to treat uh, the uh, the cosmological argument uh, in in the form that Leibniz and Clark uh, introduce it um, as a proof of anything. I don't treat it as a proof of anything. But, what, but here's what they say, in effect. They say that um, if you have the totality of contingent things, um, even with each element of the totality being explained by a predecessor in an infinite uh, causal regress, uh, you still haven't explained why there is something and not nothing. But we still haven't explained why there is something and not nothing. Uh, why, is there, why is this here? Right? That's sort of fundamental mystery of why this is here.
0: You really think that question is coherent, though? Like Why, uh, why, why is, is there, there something, something rather than nothing? I think if, it's Whenever coherent. I ask a why question, like, why is this chair here? I'm asking a question about antecedent conditions. That's, uh, that's what why means. I'm either I'm asking, sure I'm either asking you to tell me about the state of the past that brought the chair about... Or about the state of the intentions of the people, like why did they build a Kindle? Why did they put, mm-hmm. put it together that way? I'm asking about the past and the way matter and mind was working in the past. That's what I mean when I ask a why question. Why is well, this, I'm, that's, that's always what I mean when I ask a why question. I don't ever mean whatever why means in that sentence. Why is there something rather than nothing? I think you're meaning why in a different way than I mean why when I
1: ask why. It, and that's possible, and and it may be that that we need to parse out some some sense of why, but. It, It's also possible that they're asking it in the same sense. Um, And what, and they're saying that, and and this is uh, at least in some versions of the argument, why agency is uh, thought to be an essential feature of uh, the necessary being. But let me, let me get back to that. They, they say, all right, you have, if you explain, uh, Contingent things in terms of other contingent things in terms of other contingent things, you haven't explained the whole. That's what they want to say. In order to explain the whole, in order to have an explanation, in order to end the regress of explanation, uh, and have something that that therefore really explains, an ultimate explanation, you need uh, that which in some way explains itself. That's the only way to end the regress of explanation. And if you end the regress with a contingent thing you haven't explained anything that's that's the, the argument but, so but explanations always proximate
0: like every explanation that I've ever heard is proximate except for in this one argument right well so shouldn't
1: you be using a different word I mean come on every explanation is is proximate in these ordinary conversations but uh, but there's a there's a quest here for the the quest is The recognition that if all explanations are proximate, then the task of explanation is ultimately nothing more, in a fundamental sense, than the task of description. That what you're really doing is just trying to describe the phenomenon in front of you as completely as possible, and describe the relations. And describe the
0: antecedent conditions that brought it about. I mean, just take humanity, for example once the explanation was thought to be divine providence breathing into mud or something, something like that, something Mm. miraculous. And now the explanation is thought to be that we grew up from an earlier hominid species. You're describing antecedent conditions and saying this is how things went down. This is what happened.
1: Well, you're describing antecedent conditions and the law-like regularities that that regulate transition from one state to another. Mm -hmm. right? Right. Right and um, that is description. Sorry. Right, A so lot more description than we had before. Right, so um, so if uh, so if all description is proximate, uh, this would be another way to sort of put the argument. If all description is proximate, really all that or all explanation is proximate. Sorry, really all that explanation is is description in some uh, broader sense, uh, and we haven't really explained. Now, now uh, where
0: explained, really explained means something different than explained when we usually use the term because when we usually use the term we always mean some antecedent conditions of space and time and matter well, but in this one special case in the, in the case of the cosmological
1: argument sure. we mean something different I'm not sure that that's what we've always meant by explain. but in any event you get to this point where you say if we are to explain the whole if the whole is to be explained, the only thing that would explain the whole would be a non-contingent being, a being that was necessary. And the reason is because if it was a contingent being, then you wouldn't have explained the whole because it would be unexplained, right? Right. So if we are to explain the whole, the only way to explain the whole is by reference to something which is not contingent. Now, here's where I think uh, you, you talked about when I ask why questions, I'm asking either what caused it or, or what motivated the agent, right? And uh, uh, Which is to say there's a species of
0: causation that we... Can only understand well from the inside of our own psychology. Right, like there neurons are firing, stuff's going on, but we need to explain it from so from folk psychology to even begin to wrap our heads around it. You know, why did she murder her husband? Because she was jealous.
1: Right. Well,
0: we're not going to try to explain that in terms of neuronal firings; it would just take too long.
1: Well, we were explaining things in these terms long before we knew anything about neuronal firing, and we were explaining things in these terms uh, based on uh, an immediate internal. Uh, subjective sense of, sense yeah. of our of our own selves our own consciousness uh and what we are uh that conceived of this form of explanation as being uh, uh, different from mechanistic causation right. and uh, the debate still rages Hasn't about Harris whether it's argued
0: that there's a whole separate module of the brain that addresses agent causation as opposed to the kind of causation we see when we move objects around?
1: Well, let me uh, say the debate still rages uh, on whether um, agent causation is reducible to uh, material causation.
0: But if the neurologists are right, and there really are separate mental modules processing I mean, literally different modules in the brain processing agent causation and ordinary kinetic causation or electrochemical or whatever else it is, then the intuition that these are two totally different things is built into us by evolution. We're always going to think of these as two different modes of causation. We might be wrong, but we can't help but think of them as two different things because it's very adaptive for us to think interpersonally is one kind of causation and physics is a different kind of causation that really works for us humans
1: and uh, I mean the issue of whether it works or not and whether these really are two different species of causation um, uh, those are different questions but the point is that if you think that to explain the whole you need a you need a necessary being And the necessary being, because of it's, it's it's going to be, in a sense, not part of this universe of contingent beings regulated by uh, laws and uh, uh, prior conditions. Which Um, is almost always what
0: we mean by the word being. Well, let me... Aside from when the word necessary or supreme is put in front of the word being, (laughs) being means... Something that operates within space and time right. according
1: to certain laws. Yeah. If we have a necessary being, it's, it's not going to be anything like. But the point is, the necessary being is not going to be part of the universe as we know it. It's going to be fundamentally mysterious in, in important ways. It's going to be. If you think the cosmological argument uh, uh, is sound, which you will think. I argue, if you accept the principle of sufficient reason, and you won't, if you don't, right? Um, sure. Uh, if you think the cosmological argument is sound, if you accept that the principle of sufficient
0: reason can be extended beyond ordinary space, time, matter, and energy,
1: right? If you like think, if you like me, and you just think the
0: principle applies to objects acting within space and time, then. It's not going to get you there. You need to be able to accept that the principle of sufficient reason can be extended beyond beyond objects moving within space and time
1: to, to the, to the whole.
0: totality of the entire cosmos,
1: right?
0: Which then, which encompasses then, all of time and space within it,
1: right? So that it, uh, so the whole, right, right, and not just the parts. Right. Can right. I talk
0: about the fallacy of composition for a second?
1: Bertrand Russell uh, accused coplestone of the fallacy of composition in a debate about the cosmological argument i think it was coplestone it it, seems like it's bound to happen yeah Yeah. Uh, but uh i mean the point that uh uh, is that the uh i think copleston made this point in response that copleston was not embracing the principle of sufficient reason as a kind of inference from uh well all of these little things here uh, have an explanation and need an explanation. Therefore, the whole does. He's not doing an inductive uh, argument from right. we know it's true <laughs>
0: for these. Therefore, right.
1: It's not. It's it's not uh, the principle of sufficient reason for those who embrace it is not embraced because uh, we we see it to hold for these things and therefore we think it has to hold for the whole. Um, but rather, uh, it's it's just this base level intuition. The idea is that. Uh, the principle of sufficient reason is not something that we arrive at through uh, inductive means or deductive means. And it's not a self-evident principle in the sense of of uh, being, uh, you know, analytically true or anything like that. Right, right. Um, it's... Um, uh, so, you know, it's not... If one were to attempt to defend the principle of sufficient reason through some kind of inductive (laughs) argument from well look at things in the world uh, they all seem to require an explanation Uh, uh, they all seem to to be such that they have an explanation Um, then one would be guilty of the fallacy of composition. Um, But, you know, Leibniz and Clark don't defend the principle of sufficient reason. They treat it as as an axiom of their system. Now, the question we need to ask is, why is it that they uh, treat it as axiomatic? And the reason they treat it as axiomatic, uh, I mean, they say, well, it's self-evident. Well, of course, Hume came along and said, well, it's self-evident to me. Bertrand Russell came along. as Not self-evident to me. Brute fact, right? Uh, the universe, existence yeah. of the of the whole is a brute fact, right? Uh, and the the reality of brute facts. That's my cell phone. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no word. Um, the uh, uh, if you believe in brute facts, as 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 many do, then basically you've rejected the principle of sufficient reason. Um, Leibniz and Clark, to the extent that they embrace the principle, do so on the basis of uh, just a deep intuition mm-hmm. that just seems intuitively right to them. Right, okay. Right?
0: You know that students come inbuilt with a lot of intuitions that seem d- deeply intuitive to them, that you have to un- unlearn them. Right. You have to...
1: At the same time, we cannot, no one functions without. These kinds of rock bottom intuitions. Right. And it is impossible to be a human being who doesn't have rock bottom intuitions. Right.
0: But we right. both characterize ourselves as free thinkers. Right. Which is but. why we, we want to question in, intuitions, whether moral right. or otherwise. We want to right. question our intuitions.
1: Right. But to question your intuitions is not to say that you stop having them. Right, right, I mean, and it 's not to say that someone who is operating on the basis of uh, an intuition isn 't uh rational because they ha- haven 't established that intuition right, so what i have a, a,
0: a but it 's worthwhile to try to examine oh, yeah. them right yes, it's say, worth... is this intuition valid am I right. grounding it I mean, can it be grounded
1: yeah right I mean these are all important questions, right, if we look at the principle of sufficient reason as a sort of rock bottom intuition, we can ask, is this intuition one that, um, we have reason to, uh, a good reason, serious reason to doubt, right? Um, is there in some of the sort of popular language of, of contemporary epistemology, uh, a defeater right. for this intuition, for this baseline intuition? Um, Uh, is there uh, some uh, foundation, some sort of deeper foundation or argument that can be made for the intuition so that it maybe needn't be simply embraced intuitively? Uh, I mean, to the extent that we can sort of get down to as few intuitions as possible and sort of build our our network of beliefs on the fewest sort of uh, starting points, that, that would seem to... All else being equal, be better. Um, uh, I mean, these are all important things.
0: Let me ask what you think about this. Uh I'm sure you've had to go through the list of informal fallacies and say, you know, this is not a good argument. This here, this, you know, ad hominem, abusive, this, that, and the other thing. The whole list of informal fallacies. Aren't all of those rooted on a very commonly held intuition? Like, we have an intuition that if you've made your opponent look bad, what you're saying might be more true. You know, and that's the intuition at the root of of different kinds of ad hominem fallacies. And and for each informal fallacy, there's an intuition which is so widely held that we had to go ahead and write it down in the list of fallacies. Because if it wasn't a widely held intuition, then it wouldn't be so. It wouldn't be the kind of mistaken reason which is so popular that we had to put it in the list.
1: Right? Um, I'm not sure if it, I mean you. You might use the term intuition for what you're describing, but I think it would be intuition in a different sense of the term. Okay. Um, I mean, um, anyone who, um, pauses for a moment and reflects on the statement, um, if, uh, Joe, uh, looks, uh, silly, um, then what Joe says is false, right? Or something like that.
0: Fairly widely held into it. Well, if, <laughs> I, if, I if, if you
1: it. were to, um, if you were to sort of frame that and, and say, uh, people who look silly, uh, uh, um, or, or, If a proposition is uttered by a person who looks silly, then the proposition is false. Well, anyone who's presented with that statement in um, uh, propositional form and asked, is that right, are going to say, no. Uh, But it operates on a more subconscious level. And in that sense, it's intuitive. That people sort of intuitively make this leap because this connection is operating on a on a less conscious level it's like um isn't that just an aspect of the tribalist intuition if, if
0: somebody looks like they belong in our culture they're dressed appropriately for our culture then we're going to trust them more yeah. but if they're wearing a fez and baggy pants they just don't look professorial we're gonna we're not going to give them as much credit we're not going to listen to them as we would somebody who looked like they dressed like they appeared. They know what they're talking about.
1: That's, I mean, there's a there's a different issue about to whom do we extend credibility? Right, right, and um, uh, and but that's a different issue than a sort of intuitive belief. Um, uh, but let me, I mean, are, are,
0: okay, are there any other intuitions other than the principle of sufficient reason which would be in that category that you could compare it to? It like oh. William Lane Craig uses this. He says it's intuitively obvious that everything that began to exist has a cause. You know, he doesn't really try to ground that. He just says, well, you know. Well, there's the principle.
1: Here's the principle of excluded middle. Okay. um, Is is a principle that, by the way, certain logicians and mathematicians reject. And uh, the... um, there are certain strains of physics that uh, in a sense operate in terms of a suspension of the uh, principle of excluded middle. Now, for those who don't know, the principle of excluded middle uh, is basically a principle that says if you take uh, a proposition and its negation, uh, they exhaust the possibilities. Right. So if you P have... P or not P. Right. P or not P. Um uh it's like uh yeah disjunctive the the disjunctive statement either I am in this room or i am not is true and necessarily true
0: and by the way, he is in this room yeah yeah it's true yeah. <laughs> Okay, so at this point in the recording, uh, we kind of start digressing into increasingly abstruse uh, philosophical discussions going further and further down the uh, rabbit hole. And um, I, I understand that maybe you guys aren't totally into that, so uh, tune in next week when we get back to talking about stuff that's in the book.
2: This podcast is a production of the Oklahoma Atheist, an organization dedicated to developing a community of like-minded individuals who share the ideals of free and critical thinking, and as opposed to the uncritical acceptance of faith-based ideas and norms. Our activities include dinner meetups, potlucks, family outings, debates, speeches, book clubs, volunteer opportunities, and political events and protests. We welcome all who share the ideals of critical thinking and who reject religious dogma. In addition to cultivating the community, we wish to contribute and put a face with all positive things non-believers and people with a secular viewpoint are doing in the world. If you'd like to know more, please visit us online at www.OklahomaTheAtheist.com.